Before we get into today's case, let's hear from our sponsors at Uncommon Goods who help support the podcast. Guys, the holiday season is here and I'm so excited for my favorite activity during this time of the year, giving gifts. I love finding special and unique gifts for my friends and family and my goal is to always surprise them with something they've never seen before. So if you're anything like me, Uncommon Goods is going to be your secret weapon this holiday season. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list, whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family. Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. I love that Uncommon Goods offers personalized gifts, so it's perfect if you're trying to get something for someone's birthday, for an anniversary, for Christmas. You can get them a hoodie that has their name on it, or you can get them a mug with like a cute word. So that's definitely something that I'm going to be gearing towards towards the holiday season, especially because during Christmas, I love having matching pajamas with people. So I feel like it'll be cute to get personalized pajamas for my family. But if you're not into personalized gifts, don't worry. They also offer so many unique and cool gifts including you know hair accessories you guys can get stuff for your kitchen you guys can get stuff for your husband for your wife there's just so many things to choose from when you shop at uncommon goods you're supporting artists and small independent businesses so nothing from a generic brand or a popular store these fine products are often made in small batches so shop now before they sell out this holiday season uncommon goods finds products that are high quality unique and often handmade here in the u.s They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary, and unique gifts that spark conversations. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts that you can find anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. That's what the holiday spirit is all about. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash what happened that's uncommongoods.com slash what happened for 15% off don't miss out on this limited time offer uncommon goods were all out of the ordinary now back to the case Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 31. Today, we're gonna be talking about such an upsetting and disturbing case. Every single time I film one of these videos, I'm just reminded about how evil people can truly be. Today, we're gonna be talking about what happened to Heather Jackson and her two children, Selena and Wayne. It's just so upsetting. Like, I don't understand how someone could take the life of a young mother, but also the life of her two children. All three of them were just innocent humans who did not deserve this. Before we get into this, I do want to put a trigger warning because we are going to be talking about sexual assault involving children. With that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Heather, Selena, and Wayne Jackson. Heather Ann Jackson was born on October 12, 1988 in Sandusky, Ohio. There's actually not that much information about Heather or her children. There is a See No Evil episode about her case, which I was able to watch on HBO Max. That episode was really helpful in getting information about the case, about Heather, and just more details overall. You get to hear from Heather's family, from her mom, from her best friend, from detectives on the case. So it's a really insightful episode. Besides that, there's only a handful of articles about 
about Heather's case, so there really isn't that much coverage. Friends and family describe Heather as someone who had the most beautiful smile. Her smile could just brighten anyone's day, and she was pretty much always smiling. She was described as being very outgoing, happy, and just an absolutely lovable person. Heather was also really friendly. You know, when I was looking into this case, I was just like, wow, there are so many people that just care about her so much. Yeah, Heather wasn't perfect, but really, who is? Despite that, everyone pretty much only had good things to say about her. So let's talk about Heather's love life. In high school, she had a boyfriend named Wayne Jackson. The two of them were really in love and they continued to date after graduating from high school. Their relationship was going so well that they decided to take the next step and get married. They tied the knot in 2008 when Heather was 20 years old. So they were definitely pretty young when they got married, but that's just how in love the two of them were. The pair eventually had two children together. Their first was Selena Marie Jackson, who was born on March 10th in 2009. And then their second child was Wayne Albert Jackson Jr., who was born on January 4th, 2011. Both kids were just absolutely adorable. You know, just seeing photos of them brings a smile to your face because they just look so sweet, so kind, and just so innocent. As soon as Heather's kids were born, everything changed. Her friends and family say that her kids became her life and it was them before anything. Her best friend Danielle used to tell her that she was kind of like a quote magazine mother, kind of like the perfect mom, you know? She would just do anything for her kids. So even though Heather and Wayne were high school sweethearts, they started having some issues in their marriage. Friends of Heather state that the birth of their two children just really caused a strain on their marriage. They got into this big fight on May 12, 2012 which was actually Mother's Day, and they just completely stopped speaking to each other. Soon after the fight, they started the process of getting a divorce, and Wayne moved to North Carolina, which is an eight-hour drive from Ohio. So now, Heather was taking care of her young kids, you know, a toddler and an infant, all on her own. It was so hard for her, but Heather was a tough girl, and she did her best to push through it. So on top of caring for her children, Heather had her own business, which was a company called Diamonds Cleaning Service. And in addition to that, she also worked two other jobs. She worked at Tiffin Avenue Factory in Sandusky and at the pizza parlor in Huron, Ohio, which was about a 20 minute drive from Sandusky. So, you know, she was really trying her best to provide for her kids while going through a divorce. But during this time, Heather's friends were concerned about her because Heather was silently struggling with addiction. At one point, she actually started living out of her car and she actually had to send her kids to go live with her family. So this was definitely such a difficult time for the family. They were all just hoping that Heather would get better and just get back on her feet which she eventually did by the end of August 2012. Heather was no longer living in her car and she had rented a bungalow style home at 723 John Street. With this, she was able to bring her children back to live with her and she was so happy about this. Her best friend Danielle says that when Heather found the house, she was just so excited. It was the first house that she had for the kids on her own and she did it on her own. So Heather just felt so proud of herself. Life hadn't been easy for her, so she really needed this win. 
It was so nice that she had so much support from her friends and family through this difficult time. Danielle was always there for her and they would spend so much time together and Danielle would sometimes even babysit the kids. You know, she would invite them over to her house for a sleepover. So Heather definitely had a good support system for her and for her children. She was just so excited for this new chapter of her life. You know, she was getting ready to decorate this new home for her children and she wanted to paint every room in the house a different color. The outside of the house was just like very gray and she felt like it was kind of depressing. So she wanted the inside of her house to just seem so happy and full of life. During this time, she also bought her kids new toys and a toy chest to put the toys in. So everything just seemed to be going well. Heather had been through so much in the past few years. She had gone through a divorce, she had gone through addiction, and now she finally had this home and was living with her children again. She was putting so much time and effort into making her house a home, but unfortunately, everything would change on September 8th, 2012. That was the day that Heather and her two children were murdered. So that day, Heather's neighbors noticed that her house was really quiet. Normally, they would see Heather playing outside in the driveway with her children, but that morning, the family was not outside, which just really stuck out to the neighbors since it was a weekend. It was also really not that normal for a house with two young children to be that quiet on a Saturday morning. The morning would go by without any sign of Heather and her two children. Not only did her neighbors not see them, but her family hadn't heard from her since the night before, which was really odd because she was always in touch with her family, always keeping them posted on what was happening, but now she was pretty much MIA. As I mentioned earlier, her best friend Danielle was very active in Heather and the children's lives. She would often take the children to her house for a sleepover and she just loved spending time with them. So that Saturday, she actually had plans to go pick up Selena and take her for a sleepover at her house. She pulled up to Heather's house at around 2.30 p.m. and knocked on the door. She called out for Heather, but received no response. This was really weird. I mean, Heather was normally very quick to answer the door, especially because they actually had plans to meet up that day and, you know, get Selena. So the fact that Heather wasn't even answering the door was really weird. Danielle started snooping around the outside of the house, and that's when she noticed that the side screen door was locked. Heather only locked that door when she was home, so since it was locked, that meant that she should have been inside. Danielle knocked on the side of the door, but again, there was no answer. She knocked a few more times in the front door, on the back door, but no one ever came to open, so she decided to leave. At around 5 p.m., she received a call from Heather's mother, Jody. Now, Jody was really worried because she had not been able to get in contact with her daughter all morning long. She said that Heather wasn't picking up any of her phone calls, which was really weird because Heather and her mom had such a good relationship that they would pretty much talk every single day. So the fact that they hadn't spoken at all today definitely made her feel weird. She just started to get like a really weird gut feeling. You know, I'm not sure if it was maybe like a mother's intuition, but she just felt like something was off. Now, the family knew that Heather couldn't have gotten too far because her car was actually seized by the police a few weeks ago because she had been driving with an expired license. So because of this, one of her close friends named Amanda had been driving her around town and just helping her out if she needed to run any errands. But she hadn't contacted Amanda to drive her anywhere that morning. So if Heather had left the house, she had either gotten a ride from someone else or she had walked. Going back to Jody and Danielle, Jody asked Danielle to go back to the house to check in on Heather. So she goes back, she continues knocking outside of the house, 
but receives no response. While she's waiting outside, she spots something weird. She sees that Selena's binky was just sitting on the back porch all by itself, which shocked her because apparently Selena absolutely loved that binky and she wouldn't go anywhere without it. So the fact that it was just sitting out there all day by itself was such a huge red flag to Danielle. This is when she knew that she needed to get inside the house, so she went over to the exterior of Selena's bedroom and she actually managed to open a window from the outside. She was able to hear the TV playing inside, but she couldn't hear anyone speaking, so it honestly sounded like the house was empty. She was able to see that Wayne's baby bottle was on Selena's bed, which was right in front of the window. And in the distance, she saw that there was a toddler bed in the living room with Wayne's blankies on them. Danielle was concerned when she saw this because there is no way that Heather would leave without taking Wayne's blankies or taking his bottle. So she called Heather's mom, Jody, and told her about what she saw. Jody knew that something just wasn't right, so she decided to call 911 and ask them to do a welfare check on Heather. This is that 911 call. So police arrive at Heather's home at around 6.30 p.m. and they knock on the door and walk around the property. Since they didn't see any evidence of a crime, you know, there was no broken glass, there was no blood when they looked in the windows, they decided to just leave because Heather was an adult and they just thought that maybe she simply wasn't home. To them, they really had no reason to break into the house, so they left and just returned to the police station. However, just minutes after the police left Heather's house, they received another another 911 call. This time, it was coming from a man named Daniel. On the phone with 911, Daniel said that he was outside of Heather's house along with his friend Thomas and that the police needed to come ASAP. The dispatcher was like, yeah, like we were just there. We just checked on her not that long ago. But that's when Daniel told the dispatcher that there was a body under the effing mattress. So this is that 911 call. Daniel Weiser, we was just in We just checked on her not okay. that long ago. Okay, I walked in the back door because I thought I heard someone come in and there's a body under the mattress. Then there's a what? A body, a person's body, a deceased person. Now, this is what happened. Daniel and another friend named Thomas had pulled up to Heather's house because they heard that she was MIA and they just wanted to get to the bottom of what had happened. So they knocked on Heather's door, but nobody answered. They decided to go check the back to see if maybe the back door was unlocked or maybe a window. As they were checking the back door, Daniel thought that he heard someone say, come in. So since he heard someone say that, he forced the back door open and was able to get inside the house. That's when he realized that the house was empty. There was no sign of Heather or her two children. Thomas eventually made it inside the house as well, and the two of them started going room by room. 
They eventually made their way to Heather's room, but unfortunately, that is when they came across a very disturbing scene. There, wedged between two mattresses, was the body of Heather Jackson. There was a pair of red shorts and gray underwear wrapped around her neck, and she was found naked. It was clear that Heather had been strangled. Sergeant Eric Graybill of the Sandusky Police arrived at the crime scene and they met Thomas and Daniel outside. He took down their statements and then, along with a couple of other patrol officers, entered the house to begin their investigation. They sealed off Heather's bedroom, but there was still no sign of her babies. This actually started to give detectives hope that maybe the babies were still alive. Maybe a family friend had taken them, maybe a neighbor had taken them. They were just holding on to any hope that they had that the babies were still alive. So as they were about to leave the house to go investigate and find the babies, Sergeant Eric noticed that there was a door at the back of the living room where they hadn't checked yet. He approached the door, but it was locked. They somehow managed to unlock the door, and when they opened up, they saw that there was a bunch of things stacked up in front, kind of like blocking the door. We're not really sure if Heather had placed the boxes there herself or if the killer had done this. Either way, detectives kind of peeked over the top of the boxes to see if there was anything back there, and that's when they spotted the body of a little girl. They continued looking around the closet, and that's when they also spotted the top of the head of a little boy. This little girl and this little boy were confirmed to be Selena and Wayne. The killer had strangled both babies and had pretty much just thrown their bodies into the back of the closet, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. I don't understand how someone could do that to a child and just toss them as if they were nothing. This is just a really disturbing and just heartbreaking scene for detectives and for police officers. This really shocked them because this is not something that happened in their community. I mean, how could someone do this to a mother and her children? It just broke their heart seeing the two kids' bodies in the closet, and it was even more heartbreaking having to inform Heather's family of what had happened. Jody says that detectives pulled up to her house and knocked on her door. She opened up, and that's when they told her the news about Heather and her two grandchildren. She said that her heart just immediately went numb. She couldn't feel anything, and she just couldn't believe that this had happened, you know, that these words were coming out of the officer's mouth. Jody says that she just felt like this deep pain inside her and she just could not believe that her daughter was gone and her two grandchildren. Not only were they gone, but they had been murdered. When one of Heather's cousins found out about what had happened, she said that she truly hoped that the killer didn't make Heather watch her kids die, which I agree because that is just the most cruel thing that anyone could ever do to a mother. As for Heather's best friend, Danielle, she was still waiting to see what had happened. I mean, she's kind of the one that started this whole thing in the first place. You know, she was there knocking on the door, looking through the window, and just trying to figure out what happened to her best friend and her children. So when she got the call from Jody informing her about the murders, she also just went completely numb and just couldn't believe it. As for Amanda, the friend who I mentioned earlier who was helping drive around Heather, she says that that morning she woke up and she called Heather, but... Heather never picked up. So when she heard the news about Heather's death, she truly thought that someone was playing a joke on her. I mean, how could her best friend be gone? 
My thoughts and prayers just absolutely go out to Heather's family. This is just an unimaginable pain that no one should ever have to go through. The fact that Danielle was there that morning just trying to pick up Selena to go take her to a sleepover, but was now being informed that all three of them had been murdered is just absolutely terrible. Now, when the detectives spoke to neighbors, they said that they didn't really hear anything. They didn't hear any screaming. They didn't hear any cries for help, which honestly surprised them. To know that three people had been murdered inside that home and hadn't made any noise was truly crazy. Of course, the neighbors say that if they had heard someone screaming or if they had heard anything, they would have immediately helped or called the police, but they truly didn't hear anything. Heather's neighbors were just as heartbroken about this. I mean, I was watching some interviews with some of them and they all have children and they just can't imagine someone doing this to their own child. So they definitely felt pain for Heather's family and offered their condolences. There was actually a little memorial set up in front of Heather's home for her and for her two children. Family, friends, and neighbors would go there to leave stuffed animals, leave flowers, leave balloons, or just like leave little notes for them. There was actually so much stuff that the stuffed animals actually ended up covering most of the lawn and people in the community were just so shocked by these deaths. As for Heather's family, they were getting ready to say their final goodbyes to her. Danielle and Jody were planning on what they were going to do. Again, Danielle was still in shock. You know, she was stunned. She didn't think that anything like this would ever happen to her best friend. Everybody loved Heather, which made it so hard for her to understand why or who could have done this to her and to her children. The babies had their whole lives in front of them, so how could someone be so evil to just take everything? Jody picked up Danielle and they went to the funeral home to discuss the funeral arrangements. The community actually gathered together to help raise funds for the funeral and they were just so good at supporting the family and just being there for them. Now, as for how Heather, Selena, and Wayne were killed, the autopsy results were back and it was just truly disturbing. Their time of death was determined to be between 3 and 4 a.m. And their cause of death was ligature strangulation, according to the autopsy report from Lucas County's coroner office. The autopsy wasn't able to determine if Heather had been sexually assaulted, but it is believed that she was essayed. And it's also strongly suspected that Heather's three-year-old daughter, Selena, had been raped before she was murdered. A couple of the neighbors that were interviewed said that they felt like the town was getting dangerous now. They normally felt safe here, but now they were scared. I mean, there was a killer on the loose who had murdered a mother and her two children and had assaulted them. What if this person striked again? I mean, what if they came back to the same neighborhood and harmed another family? Everyone just wanted this person to be caught as soon as possible and punished. Now, detectives were on it. They were just as concerned and frightened, so they moved the investigation pretty quickly. Detective Witchman was leading the investigation, and from the beginning, he knew that surveillance footage was going to be their best friend. When he arrived at Heather's house, he started scoping out the scene, and that's when he realized that across the street was a hospital which had a parking lot facing Heather's house. So, 
he walked over to the hospital and that's when he realized that there was a surveillance camera he was so excited about this camera because he knew that it would capture heather's house and hopefully it would capture whoever had done this so he goes to look at the surveillance footage but it's honestly very grainy the footage isn't super visible it was also really dark outside and it was raining so of course it was just really difficult to make out anything in this footage however detective witchman remained hopeful that this would lead to something so despite how terrible the footage was he started going through it frame by frame and he decided to scroll back to see some footage during the daytime while he was going through this footage detectives were still at heather's house trying to gather more evidence one patrolman actually came forward and said that the night before he was patrolling the area when he saw heather playing outside of her house with her two children at around 8 30 p.m which of course was very helpful in terms of putting together a timeline of what actually happened that night this information was relayed to Detective Witchman. So while he was looking at the surveillance footage, he scrolled back to 8.30 p.m. the night before. And that's when he spotted a car driving past Heather's house. That was until 10.57 p.m. This is when he spots something. He zooms into the footage and he sees a car pull up to Heather's house. It's really hard to see because the footage is pretty blurry, but Detective Witchman can spot a silhouette leaving Heather's house and approaching the car. Then the car pulls into her driveway and turns off the car. So whoever was in the car was now inside her house. But again, the footage was just so blurry that they couldn't get the license plate or really see anything else. Plus, like I mentioned, it was raining, so it was just so difficult to get anything from this footage. At 11.08 p.m., the car's headlights switched back on and the car drove out of the driveway and it left southbound on Prospect Street. But still, it was really difficult for Detective Witchman to make out the make or model of the car or at least even get the license plate. That person could have been the one who was actually responsible for the murder, so Detective Witchman was determined to find him. So Detective Witchman asked for a copy of the footage so that he could later analyze it down at the station. But now that detectives had the surveillance footage, they wanted to put together a timeline of what actually had happened the night before Heather and her two children were killed. And who was this mystery visitor? They got a search warrant to go through Heather's phone records and to go through her social media because maybe that could pinpoint who she had invited that day or who had shown up. They just wanted to see, you know, who she had called that day, who called her, you know, everything. So while they waited for the phone records to come back, immediately after discovering the bodies, Daniel and Thomas were brought in by police for questioning. And just to reiterate, this is all happening the day that Heather and her children's bodies were found. So detectives were moving very quickly. Now, they brought Daniel and Thomas in for questioning. And first, Detective Witchman spoke to Daniel since he's the one that made the 911 call. He asked him how he knows Heather and Daniel said that he didn't really know her, that he was only at Heather's house that morning because Thomas was the one that knows her and wanted to go check in on her. So he just kind of like went along with him. So Daniel explained how he got into the house. At first, he lied and said that the door was wide open because he didn't want to implicate himself, but Daniel later admitted that he did break the door open to get in. He said that he went to the back door opened the screen door and opened the main door. Now, Detective Witchman asked him if he kicked the door in and if it was unlocked, which Daniel said yes to. However, when officers first arrived to do the welfare check after Jody had called them, they stated that all the doors were locked, 
like they literally went to go check every door even the back door but they were shut closed so they didn't understand how daniel was claiming that the back door was unlocked when other officers said that it wasn't so at this point detective witchman just knew that daniel was probably lying because he trusts the police officer's word more so he kept encouraging Daniel to just tell him the truth and he says, you know, listen, if you guys had to force the door open, that's fine. Like, you just need to tell us the truth about whether or not you forced yourself inside of Heather's home. That's when Daniel finally admits that the door was not unlocked and that he had to shake for it to open up. Now, he just wanted to reiterate to detectives that he didn't have to kick or push it in or anything like that. All he did was shake the door. Detective Witchman was like, okay, perfect. Like, that's very important information. It's important to be honest so that I can put all the pieces together. After this, he said, okay, since you were in the house, I'm going to need your DNA. So Daniel immediately agreed to this and he gave over his DNA with no hesitation. After this, Thomas was questioned. Thomas said that Heather had called him last night, so he went over to her house, left, but then came back later that night. He also mentioned that he saw a guy named Josh, who he said he thought his last name started with the C, inside her house. Now, he says that he only talked to Heather for a little bit, but then he told her that he had to get going, and she gave him a hug goodbye. When he didn't hear from Heather the next morning, Thomas said that he decided to go to her house with his friend Daniel to check in on her. And Thomas also gave investigators his DNA. After these interviews, detectives kept Daniel and Thomas on their suspects list because they state that it's not uncommon for someone that committed a crime to go back to the crime scene to make it appear that they're innocent or just to relive the crime or just make sure that they didn't leave anything behind. While detectives waited for the DNA results to come in, investigators turned their attention to the man that Thomas says was in the house after he left, the guy named Josh. To detectives, Josh is now the last person to have had contact with Heather and the two kids. Detectives eventually figure out who Josh is and they bring him down to the police station for questioning. In Josh's interview, he said that he knew Heather through a friend and when he was at her house, he saw that the kids were sleeping. He says that he left the house at around 12.49 a.m. and he even showed police a text on his phone to kind of confirm to them like, look, I did leave her house at this time. He also gave his DNA and he added that there was another guy at the house named Tom. He says that Tom pulled up in his car, that Heather went out to speak to him, and that he left shortly after. So he was basically confirming what Thomas had said, you know, how he had gone to the house, spoken to her, and then had driven away. To confirm Josh's story about what he did after, detectives looked at 7-Eleven footage and it did confirm that he left and went to 7-Eleven. So what Josh was saying was true. Now, Josh did add that he did black out a couple of times during the night where he was hanging out with Heather, so he couldn't account for all of his actions that night, which of course did lead police to doubt his statements. You know, he kind of just lost some credibility since he says that he can't even remember exactly what happened. Even though the surveillance footage from 7-Eleven did confirm that Josh was there, it still didn't rule him out from having anything to do with the murders. He could have easily left the 7-Eleven and then immediately went back to Heather's house to commit the crime. Now, the DNA results came back and it eventually cleared Daniel and Thomas, but it didn't clear Josh yet. Turns out that they did find some of Josh's DNA, but along with him, they also found the DNA of an unknown male. So when detectives learned this, they said, 
someone else was there. The DNA did not belong to Daniel or to Thomas, so who is this mystery man? Detectives also checked all of their phone records and everything that they said pretty much added up. Now, the phone records for Heather were finally back. Heather was very active on her phone the night of the murders, but all of a sudden at one point in the middle of the night, all of her phone calls from that point went on to voicemail. She was still taking calls until about three o'clock in the morning, and that was telling detectives that somewhere in that time frame is when the murders happened. The very last conversation was a 30-second phone call that she had at 3.12 in the morning. Whoever this person was that she called could be the puzzle piece to solving this case. So they looked at the security footage that was pointing towards Heather's house once again. They confirmed that there was a white car that had pulled up to her house. So so they went to go check the timestamp and that's when they saw that the car pulled up at 3.12 in the morning the same time that Heather ended her phone conversation. So this unknown caller is the same mystery man in the white car, but who is he? The car was parked outside of Heather's house for over an hour, which led detectives to believe that that's when the murders took place. After about an hour, whoever this person was got back inside the white car and drove away. As I mentioned, the footage is just so blurry, so Detective Witchman was not able to get a clear footage of the car, but he was still determined to find another angle and get this guy. So he goes back to the hospital that has the parking lot with the original camera, and he realizes that another side of the hospital has a camera as well. So maybe that camera captured where the car was going or maybe captured a better angle. It wasn't pointing directly at Heather's house, but it will still capture any vehicle coming and going from her house that are either going to the east or to the west. He started going through the footage and at around 4.16 in the morning, he sees the white car leave Heather's house. The car drives right in front of the camera and he starts zooming in on the license plate and you still can't really see it. You still can't really see who was driving the vehicle, but at least now detectives got a clear picture of the car and of the description. This white car was a Cadillac. The investigators got Heather's phone records and they noticed two phone calls from the same number. These were two of the last phone calls that Heather made. The first one was at around three o'clock in the morning and lasted 182 seconds. And the second one was at 3.12 a.m. and lasted 38 seconds. All the calls made to Heather after this 3.12 a.m. call went straight to her voicemail. Now, police were able to identify the owner of this phone number as a man named Curtis Clinton. Detective Ken Dixon said that he actually knew who Curtis was and that he drove a white Cadillac because he had actually investigated him for a different case before. So who was Curtis Clinton and how did he know Heather? Curtis Clinton was 41 years old and he had just been released from prison on parole six to seven months before the murders had happened. He was released after serving a 13-year sentence for sexual assault and involuntary manslaughter for the 1997 murder of 17-year-old Misty Keckler, which is crazy. The fact that he only served 13 years for murdering someone is insane. Misty had been found strangled in a Fostoria mobile home with her hands tied behind her back. Her feet were bound and she was found naked, submerged in a bathtub. Again, this is just crazy to me because that's not manslaughter. 
For those that don't know, manslaughter is when you commit a crime and accidentally kill someone. I have no idea how he was only charged with this and if it was some type of plea deal, but again, it's just insane to me. So Curtis had pleaded guilty to her murder and he was also a registered sex offender. However, the year before Misty's murder in 1998, Curtis was convicted of having sex with a minor. I really don't understand how Curtis got such little time or possibly no time for that. And then after he committed another horrible crime, he was able to just be free. And the reason police were already looking for Curtis was because just days before, he had actually raped a 17-year-old girl on Monday, September 3rd, of that year. So literally just days before Heather, Selena, and Wayne were murdered, he had done something so brutal. So what happened in this case is that a 17-year-old girl who we will call ES visited a friend in early September and the two of them spent a few days at Curtis's Sandusky apartment. While ES was at the apartment, Curtis raped her and then choked her until she passed out. When she woke up from this, Curtis raped her again. After this, ES went to the hospital and had a rape kit done and the nurse was able to collect DNA evidence. ES was able to tell police what type of car Curtis drove. So based on the similarities between the case and the surveillance evidence, Curtis became the primary suspect in Heather and her kids' murders. They went to his house to try to find him, but he wasn't there, so they put out a bolo for him. Investigators actually found Curtis's car before they found him. The car was found 15 miles away from Heather's home and inside his car was a receipt from a gas station the night of the murders and this gas station was right by Heather's house. Detectives went to the gas station, they looked at the footage, and they confirmed that it was Curtis who was driving the white Cadillac that night. They saw him on camera enter the store and buy some beer and water. On September 10th, 911 dispatchers actually received a surprising call about Curtis. This is that call. Curtis had been admitted to the Bellevue Hospital as a suicidal person after ingesting a large amount of Tylenol while staying at a motel in Clyde, which was about 30 minutes away from Sandusky. So the hospital staff informed police that Curtis was there. When police arrived at the hospital, Curtis was in the process of being discharged and he agreed to go to the Sandusky Police Department with them for questioning. They arrived at the police station at about 11.06 a.m. and conducted a videotape interview with Curtis. He was actually still wearing his hospital gown. Curtis acknowledged his Miranda rights and signed a waiver of rights from agreeing to talk to the police without an attorney present. The police asked Curtis about his relationship with Heather. They asked him about what happened that night and he just kept saying that nothing had happened and police were like, okay, well, we literally have footage of you pulling up to her house, so we know that you were there. So just tell us the truth. And he was like, well, if something did happen, I don't remember. After that, Detective Witchman decided to step out of the interrogation room just to kind of take a break. And you can see Curtis on footage just putting his head on the table. I don't know if he just like felt guilty or he was just like stressed that they were going to discover the truth. So he just like put his head on the table to rest for a minute or that he was stressed from the investigation. Now, while Detective Witchman was taking a break, he was notified that they had found Curtis's DNA on Heather, Selena, 
and Wayne. So now with these results, Josh, the friend that we talked about earlier, was officially ruled out. Now, going back to Curtis, he said that he had been seeing Heather for about five months. They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. Curtis said that he had offered Heather financial support and emotional support because she was going through a difficult time, but he didn't really know her kids that well. He said that he had last seen Heather on Thursday, September 6th. They had talked that day and he gave her $328 for her car. On September 7th, he says that he was in Clyde visiting his friend Mercedes, who was actually the one that called 911. Curtis said that the last time he heard, somebody had shot Heather. He said that he was shocked that he couldn't believe that someone could do this to Heather. So police listen to this and they tell Curtis that according to phone records, he had spoken to Heather in the early morning hours of September 8th. Curtis was kind of acting confused by this and said that he must have called her when he was out at a bar. He also added that maybe he got his days confused and that he must have seen Heather on Friday, September 7th or early Saturday morning instead of Thursday like how he had mentioned. He also added that he wasn't at her house for long, that they talked. He said, quote, I did my thing and left. While he was there, he did say that the kids were asleep. He saw that the daughter was on a mattress in the living room, but that he didn't see the other kid. He also said he wasn't sure when he got back home after that. Curtis said that someone must have gotten into Heather's home after he left and he doubted that he was the last person to have had contact with her. He said that while he was with Heather, she had actually gotten a call and sounded irritated while talking to a person on the phone. Curtis said that he just didn't do anything to Heather or to the kids and if something did happen, he just doesn't remember and he just kept repeating this. He just kept repeating that he doesn't remember doing it. So even though he was denying having anything to do with the murders, again, his DNA was found on the three bodies, his DNA was found on the items used to strangle them, and his DNA was a match to the seminal fluid found. His DNA was also a match to ES's rape kit, which was from the case that I mentioned that happened just days before the murders. So with this, Curtis was officially arrested and charged with three counts of aggravated murder while committing a rape and or aggravated burglary on September 10th, 2012. And he was also additionally charged with the aggravated murder of children under 13. He was also charged with the rape of Selena and he was charged with the rape of ES. Curtis was then taken to the Erie County County Jail in Sandusky. A press conference was held to let the public know about this quick arrest. So this is what police believe happened. At 3.10 in the morning, Curtis arrives at Heather's house. He called her to let her know that he was outside. Now, detectives aren't sure if she was even expecting him in the first place. Detectives believe that maybe he wanted to have a sexual encounter with Heather, so he went there that night with this idea in his head, but maybe Heather rejected him and told him that she didn't want to do this with him, which made him become infuriated, filled with rage, and at that point, he turned into a monster and murdered Heather and her two kids, all because she didn't want to have sex with him. Then about an hour later at 4.16 a.m., Curtis left the house after committing this horrible and gruesome crime. Ten hours later, he goes to the gas station, and that's when he's caught on surveillance footage buying beer and water, which is insane that he was just able able to go buy beer after committing such a terrible and horrible thing. On September 19th, 2012, a grand jury indicted Curtis Clinton. 
And to remind everyone, that means that there was enough evidence against Curtis for there to be a trial and for his charges to hold up. Curtis's bond was set for $3 million. His trial began in November of 2013, and every aggravated murder charge came with the potential of the death sentence. His trial was actually for all of his charges, including the rape of ES. He ended up pleading not guilty despite all the DNA evidence pointing to him, and while he was in jail, Curtis actually called his mom. And this conversation was actually recorded and used as evidence against him. In the call, Curtis asked his mother how he can ever get help and said that he didn't even notice it. He said that it was even worse than before and that it is something in him. He just didn't know what it was. He said that he just loses it and he doesn't even know what it is. He also added that he thought he was doing good and he didn't think that he would do something like this again. He said that he thought that after 13 years, because again, he had served 13 years for the murder of Misty, that he was just over it. He said that he was remorseful and said that he hurt someone and said, quote, look at all the people I hurt. I am going to go in there and plead guilty or whatever and just let them do whatever. I apologize. What kind of shocked me about this phone call is that his mom seemed like understanding. She was like, yes, just calm down. Like, why don't you just pray? And I get it. Like a mother loves her child. A mother loves her son. But I don't know how she could be so nice to him and so understanding when he literally went to jail for murdering someone. Now he was arrested for murdering three people and for raping a girl. So I don't know. The mom just seemed like too sweet in my opinion. Also on the phone call, he said that he was going to plead guilty, but that wasn't true. He still remained with his original decision of going with not guilty. But days later on November 4th, 2013, Curtis Clinton was found guilty on all charges. The sentencing part of his trial began on November 12th. At the end of it, the jury recommended the death penalty for Curtis. So he was sentenced to 10 years for the rape of ES. He received life in prison without the chance of parole for the rape of Selena. And the judge also sentenced him to death for the three murders. However, in the state of Ohio, when someone is sentenced to death, it is automatically appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court. So Curtis and his lawyers argue his convictions and his sentences since he was still claiming to be innocent. They argued that trying him jointly for the rape of 17-year-old ES and for the murders of Heather and her children violated his right to a fair trial. In February of 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court decided to uphold and reaffirm the death sentence for Curtis. The court said that it was reasonable for Curtis's cases to be joined because evidence from ES's case helped to identify Curtis as a perpetrator in Heather, Selena, and Wayne's case. Curtis's attorney had also told the court that Curtis hoped to get the death penalty because he thought being on death row would be safer than being in the general population of his prison. After the ruling, Curtis made a long, unsworn statement saying that he was innocent and he accused the prosecutor of misconduct. The court did know Curtis's history of attempted suicide and his mental health diagnoses of major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and borderline personality disorder. But the court concluded that none of those factors outweighed the level of evidence and of aggravated circumstances of his crimes. Curtis is currently still on death row because Ohio is struggling to get the drugs that are used in lethal injection, which is just shocking to me, the fact that he is still on death row and that he still is claiming that he's innocent, especially after all all of that DNA evidence was found on him and his car was literally spotted at her house. It honestly breaks my heart. I don't really even know how Curtis came to be about 
Heather's life, like how he even weaseled his way in there. But the fact that he did this to Heather, an innocent girl, and to her two innocent children is absolutely disturbing. It's disgusting. And I don't know, it just, it breaks my heart. Heather's family just wants people to know that she was a great mother to her kids and that her family misses them so much, but knows that they are doing very well in heaven. There is actually a hashtag for Heather, Selena, and Wayne. It's hashtag HCW, which is the first letter of their names, but it also stands for heaven couldn't wait. Now, Heather's family was just so mad at the fact that Curtis was released in the first place after murdering Misty. The fact that he could murder someone and only serve 13 years is so disturbing. I mean, he obviously wasn't rehabilitated and he just should have never been released in the first place. There was an interview with one of Heather's family members and the interviewer asked him, how do you feel at the fact that Curtis was caught so quickly? Because he was literally caught within three days of the murders. The family member was like, of course, I'm happy that he was caught, but he should have never been on the street to begin with. If the judicial system had done its job and there was justice, he would have still been behind bars and he would have never met Heather. He would have never met Selena or Wayne and he would have never murdered them. So I just can't imagine what the family felt when they heard that Curtis had been released early. It's just truly disturbing and I truly hope that he continues to remain behind bars, that nothing crazy happens where he's released because he deserves to never be released for what he did to Heather, Selena, and Wayne. As I said at the start of the video, everyone says that Heather was an absolutely amazing mother. She loved her kids and she would do anything for them. Having her kids just made her life better and the fact that she had just moved into this new home and was excited for this new chapter of her life, but then everything was taken away from her by this guy is just so unfair. Heather Wayne and Selena did not deserve this and the fact that these little babies had such a short life I mean they had so much to live for so my thoughts and prayers go out to their family as well as to the families of Curtis's other victims I mean he had murdered Misty he had assaulted ES I mean there's just so many victims that he had and Again, I just can't believe that this guy was free. There's also a Facebook page for Heather, Selena, and Wayne. So I will have that linked under my YouTube video if you guys want to check out the Facebook page and just show the family some support. But all right, you guys, with that, this is pretty much all the information that I have for today's video. I definitely think that it starts a conversation about prison rehabilitation and about these sentences. Again, how was he released after only 13 years? He definitely should have gotten a life sentence for murdering Misty. So I would definitely love to know what you guys think about this down below. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to be here and to listen to what happened to Heather, Selena, and Wayne. If you're watching this video on YouTube, make sure to leave me a comment down below so I can see your thoughts on this case. If there's ever any other cases you would like me to cover, also leave me a comment under my YouTube video or send me a message on Instagram. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to my channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for full video episodes. You can find me on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye, guys.